what's happening? Oh, hi. I'm moving today. Uh, well, I, I thought you were kidding. Where do you want us to start? Well, go ahead. You can start out in the garage. I opened the doors for you. My records are in the garage. Mm -hmm, and they're all together, and you can take them home. You now have a house that has an attic and a basement. How can you be so nonchalant about all this? Your father and I lived in this house for 34 years, and there's no way that I'm going to live here by myself without him for even one year. The door frame in the kitchen. Honey. How are you going to know how tall we were? Well, I know that you were short, and I know that now you're tall. What else matters? You're not moving. I am moving today. Well, what's so great about a, an active adult community? Tennis? Who's going to take care of Jessie? Jessie's growing up. She's with her friends all the time now anyway. You just think that, oh, my granddaughter's all grown up, and so I'm going to move to Sunnybrook Village and leave my son Lou completely abandoned? If by abandoned, you mean I am moving to the next town over, and you'll stay here with your family and your house, then, yeah, that's being abandoned, I guess. The hydrangeas out front. What about the hydrangeas? They're temperamental, and the new buyers are going to kill well, them. Well, you know, that's what happens. Life moves on. What's that? Open it. TK421! <laughs> These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> Where'd you find him? Oh, he was in my utility drawer all these years. And, you know, he used to get tangled up with my whisks and, and other things that were in the drawer. And, you know, I tried to get rid of him a few times, but I just couldn't. Mom? Yes? When you were packing up, did you find my... Your special magazines? They're with your records, and they're all safe, and when you take your records, you can take those, too. You're going to play tennis, and I'm left with Stormtrooper, <laughs> old Led Zeppelin albums, and a bunch of National Geographic magazines. But you like all those things. Sorry to interrupt, Mr. <laughs> J. We're ready for the furniture. Oh, go ahead. Don't don't pay any attention to us. All right, boys, let's get it moving. I'll help you pack. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Renaissance. My name is Chris, and it's great to have all of you here today, especially if you're a guest. Thanks for coming and checking things out here. And we're in this series called It's Complicated. Why? Because when people are involved, it always is. For all of us, some of our most amazing moments in life that have given us so much joy and happiness have centered around relationships. On the flip side, some of the darkest, most uh, emotionally uh, intense moments of our lives have involved people. So last week we looked at you know, kind of what happens when there's a fractured relationship? What happens when conflict arises within a relationship? Because that's just the fact of relationships. I'm sure this week all of you have had moments of different degrees, different levels, but of tense, uh, uh, fractured moments within relationships where conflict has risen up. And so we started looking at kind of this idea because it's kind of all of our kind of natural human uh, reaction that when tension arises, 
uh, usually what we do is we hide and we blame. And so we surround ourselves with a bunch of different people and we start uh, telling those people what that person has done to us. And I started thinking about that this week, just within the kind of my relational context. And I'm like, that's true. The other side of this that's very true, no matter which side you find yourselves on, if this is happening now, this is happening because this person now has heard from these people about the conflict or what that person's saying. And usually what happens is some of these uh, white circles are the same people. <laughs> Isn't that true? I, I think they're professional pot stirrers. They just love to get in there and they stir the pot and they're going to both sides and they're like, hey, do you know what so-and-so said? Hey, do you know what so-and-so said? Hey, do you know? And they love just to be in the mess. But then everyone, every person has a best friend. And of course, you have to tell your best friend what's going on between those two people because that's great conversation. And before you know your entire relational world, right, it looks like this. I started thinking about just those moments in my life. And it's, it can so uh, quickly get to this point if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, if we're not aware of it. And that's why in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us this great, great strategy that when conflict arises, when, when there's a relationship that is fractured, how to deal with that. And when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, this is how it should look. It should look like this. Ah, so less complicated, right? Like that, that's the picture that we're like, okay, yeah, I could solve that with someone. But this is so difficult to do, isn't it? I mean, if this was easy, this is what we would default to. But we usually default to our kind of more basic human nature where we want to hide and blame, hide and blame. And Jesus said, don't hide and blame. Sit down with that person with the goal to reconcile. That word reconcile literally means to create peace. This idea that you had this rhythm with this person and for some reason that tension, that fracture has thrown that relationship off rhythm. And he's like, get back into rhythm with that person. Your relationship, it's chaos right now. Create peace within that relationship. There's this amazing kind of connotation that when you get to the original Greek word behind this word reconciliation, there's this connotation that there's an, an, an exchange that happens. And that's why it's so critical that when we look through this uh, framework that there's this arrow pointing to both sides where when you come and you sit down with someone, you realize that there needs to be this exchange. And for me personally, this is difficult. It's how I'm wired. It's my personality makeup. It's God has given me a, a gift of communication. And on one side, God can leverage this gift of communication in a powerful way. There's all, always a different side to that coin, right? And I know in any conversation, I can leverage my gift to honor God, or I can leverage my gift to win. My wife has said to me, Chris, you don't fight fair. And she's right. Because in conversation, I can use my words 
in a very powerful way. And you see, when you sit down with someone with a heart to reconcile, it's not about winning or conquering or being right. It's about this exchange that happens between two people to create peace. Last week at the end of my message, I shared that there's one critical component. Critical component at the heart of reconciliation. It's honestly the one critical component to uncomplicate relationships. And you see right here in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus is teaching on how to resolve conflict, right after he's done teaching in this moment, Peter, I mean, just head straight for Jesus because Peter had a question. It's the question. It's a question that all of us have asked many different times at many different moments. You see, Peter was sitting there listening to Jesus and listening to Jesus talking about resolving and reconciliation and how to do this. And I'm sure Peter was like going, but Jesus, man, I know you're Jesus, but I'm walking around with these other 11 guys called the disciples. And man, some of them talk nonstop and they're annoying. And and Judas, man, he's doing something with the money and he's skimming off the top. And there's all this conflict. And how many times do do I have to? And he asked Jesus the question. How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? I mean, this is right after Jesus is teaching on on how to resolve conflict. And guess what Peter wanted? He wanted to fill the box. Give me a number, Jesus. Isn't that what we want? We want that box filled. Because I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room that equates sin or people's actions that are sinful uh, and I put a numeric value to those. Do you do that? Let's take for instance the sin of lying. Here's a little hypothetical story. You walk down into your kitchen and there in the middle of the counter something catches your eye. It's a red Velvet cupcake. Oh, I'm not talking the cheap ones. Right? There's, oh, there's a big difference. I'm talking, it's a quality, well-made, with a lot of love, red velvet cupcake. It's moist and fluffy, and the icing on top is the real icing on top. And in that moment of weakness, you consume that red velvet cupcake. And right when you're done and you're just wiping the crumbs from your mouth, your spouse comes down. Remember, this is hypothetical. And uh, your spouse comes down and she says to you, who ate the red velvet cupcake? And you're like, oh, it must have been the kids. Is that a lie? No, that's not a lie. You've got to blame the kids at some point. You know you're going to have to come clean because as a parent, you, want, you don't want to teach your kids that line's okay. But in that moment, you're just trying to make it through. So that's not equal to one lie, is it? That's ah, a fraction. That's like an eighth of one or maybe a sixteenth because, you know, you probably will uh, uh, come clean uh, in a pretty expedient fashion. So we'll give that lie a sixteenth. But if you 
lied about your finances to say to your spouse? That's equal to one, at least, correct? And what, what if your spouse not lied about one financial decision? What if you found out that your spouse for years has been lying about financial decisions and now you're so far in debt you don't think you can ever come out of it? What's that worth? And we can apply that to all different sins, can't we? what we do i'm not saying that's biblical i'm not saying that's what god does because god says in the bible that all sin is sin and it has all the same value but we start kind of putting it through our framework i'm sure this is what peter was doing hey god i want to know the value the numbers what that means and then if you're like me there's a separate bucket and you hesitate to put the label on this bucket of sin, but you want to put the label on this bucket of sin, but you also, you know, if you've spent any time in the Bible, you know that God treats all sin the same. All sin is sin, but yet you, there's still this side bucket. And you won't write it on the bucket, but you think, you think that the label's on the bucket. It's the unforgivable sins. I mean, this week in Boston, I found myself wanting to put these two guys in that bucket. You know, murder, that's in that bucket. Rape, anything against a child, we slide into that bucket. And so Peter asked the question, a question I'm sure all of us have asked. How, how many times... How many times do I have to forgive someone? One thing Peter knew, he was raised in this Jewish culture. And his parents would have taught him this. Other rabbis would have taught him this. But it was kind of just part of the kind of rabbinic tradition. And they would have taught that, uh, that, that you would have to forgive someone three times for the same sin. That was the number in their culture that rabbis would teach, parents would teach their kids. So Peter had this as a framework. He knew that the number was three. Three times for the same sin. On the fourth, you wouldn't have to forgive that person anymore. Some of you are like, I love that. Only three? I can count that on one hand. That's great. So Peter asked this question from Jesus. And before he gave Jesus a chance to respond, he was going to give his opinion. Because this is Peter. He was the first one out of the boat. He was the first on so many, uh, so many different moments. And usually he was wrong in those moments. And so Peter kind of goes, Jesus, how many times? He knew three was culturally accept acceptable. And he said, Jesus, seven times? I'm sure he kind of kind of sat back, looked at the other disciples. And were like, I got one up on you guys. Seven. Look, Jesus, I doubled it and added one. That's a lot. I mean, you have to move from counting on one hand to counting on two hands. That's a lot of forgiveness. And then Jesus said, no, 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 Peter. Not three, not seven. But 70 times seven. Or 490 times. I wonder if Peter just paused in that moment. It's like, 
man, I can't count on my fingers or my toes. How am I going to keep track of 490 sins? I'm going to need a massive wall where I can write little tally marks. Like, how in the world am I going to remember that? And then Jesus told a story. And when I read this story uh, to you, here's what I want you to kind of think through. The king represents God. And the servants just represent people like you and me. So just think, think through those lenses. King equals God. Servants are just people like you and me. So Jesus tells this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. I mean, when you think about 10,000 bags of gold, this debt is so massive that this guy in his lifetime would never be able to pay it back. Think through it this way. It'd be like you having a debt so big that you would have to sell your house, all your property, your cars, all your possessions, cash in your retirement, your stocks, everything. Everything that has value and come up with that number whatever that means for you come up with that number and then multiply that number by itself that's the debt so when jesus said ten thousand bags of gold people would be like that number's even beyond comprehension it's beyond saving. It's beyond working an extra shift. It's beyond uh, uh, robbing a bank. Like, the number's so massive. And the king was like, I'm going to not only sell you, I'll sell you and your wife and your kids and all of your possessions. And even in that decision, it wouldn't come close. Wouldn't even put a dent into the debt. But Jesus goes on in the story. He goes, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. I mean, you think about that moment. I mean, the servant's like, no, no, king, I'll, I'll pay back everything. Maybe, hopefully, it's my desire. But the king knew so did the servant know. There's no way he could have paid it back. It was too massive. The king in that moment had so many different options. He could have sold the servant and his family into to slavery. Could have done that. That was an option. Another option, he could have put him on a payment plan. Okay, you owe me this amount, 10,000 bags of gold, and, and I'm going to estimate that you have 40 years left of your life and over 40 years i need you to pay me x amount per month until you're dead and then maybe pass that on to your kids as well so they have to keep paying he could have put them on a payment plan there's so many different options but in that moment the king does what 
cancels it. It's done. Gone. Wiped off the books. Eliminated. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Considerably less than 10,000 bags of gold. Hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And you think about that moment in the story that Jesus is telling. If he's locked up being tortured until he can pay back, do you think there's a chance he could ever pay it back? And then Jesus ends this story with, with this thought. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. See, we come back into Peter's question. How many times? How many times? And you think about this 490 number, right? And I'm sure Peter's there just processing, and now Jesus is telling this story, and now G Peter's like, oh, I think I get it. You see, the real answer to the question, how many times? Shall I forgive? The real answer? Countless. Infinity. No matter how big the debt is. But if you're like me, you click into the what if scenarios. That one bucket of sin that one bucket that we, we hesitate to write uh, unforgivable on, but yet we have it? What if the act is so heinous, so atrocious? I, mean, I, I go back to what's taken place this last week in Boston. What? Okay, God, what, what if? What if? No matter how big the debt, it's forgiven. No matter how big the debt, even if there's no way someone could ever repay you, You see, that's the heart of forgiveness. Forgiveness is canceling the debt. 
And maybe you're thinking like me, well, what if that person's not sorry? What if they're not repentant? What if they don't, they don't even care what they've done to me? You come back and you think about forgiveness. It's, it's why Jesus died on the cross for all people, for all sin. See, when Jesus died on the cross, it was this gift that was extended to all people. It's up to them if they receive it. You see, when God calls us to forgive people, he goes, it doesn't matter if they want it or not. It's about what's happening within you. It's why Jesus said in his story, you, you need to forgive them from your, your heart. From your heart. Why? If you don't forgive someone, the only other option is for bitterness and resentment and anger to grow roots into your heart. See, that's why forgiveness, it's about what's happening inside of you, not whether that person wants to, not whether you think they deserve it, not if they're repentant, not even if they know what they have done to you or not. Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's about your heart, the condition of your heart. And if you don't forgive, if you don't cancel the debt, if you don't, the only other option is bitterness and resentment and anger. Only other option. If you're like me, maybe you've thought to yourself, well, Chris, what if I just don't want to? Isn't that real? I, I, I got about two people on my I don't want to list. I just don't want to. I don't want to for a whole list of reasons. I think about Jesus before he was arrested in the garden. And I think about this moment a lot. I mean, this is right before the soldiers come in, right before he's put on trial, and right before he's crucified, and he's praying to his father. And he goes, I don't want to. I don't want to. And he goes, not my will, but your will be done. Now, my one caution is maybe depending on your specific situation. Forgiveness doesn't mean you have to keep a relationship with that person. Remember, hurting people hurt people. And the more a person is hurting, the more they will hurt someone. And for some of you, you might have on your list of people you don't want to forgive or you're struggling to forgive someone who has just hurt you and they keep hurting you. Last night, I had a, uh, someone walk up to me, and she shared with me that uh, she was uh, walking into her counselor's office, and in her counselor's office had this little sign, this little plaque, and it says, forgiveness 
is required. Trust may not be. You see, once trust is broken, it, it takes time to rebuild trust. And God calls us to forgive people, but you know what? Trust may, may come months or years or maybe never. So it's okay to put up boundaries, guardrails around your relationships until that person decides to get help, until that person decides to start healing, until that person decides to stop hurting you. That's healthy. But forgiveness is about you canceling their debt. So how do you forgive? Number one, you have to receive God's forgiveness. For some of you, you've never received the gift from Christ dying on the cross. You just never have. And I want you to know that you don't have to do anything to receive that gift. You just have to receive it. You don't have to have all the right answers. You don't have to have the entire Bible memorized. You don't have to pray eight hours a day. You don't even have to go to church every weekend. You just have to receive it. Christ did everything on the cross for you. And maybe today, in this moment, you receive the gift where you turn and you trust in Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is have that conversation with God. And that conversation with God can be as simple as God, because He knows your heart. For some of you, you've received that gift. You know what Christ did for you on that cross, but guess what? You still can't comprehend or choose not to comprehend or struggle comprehending God's forgiveness on your life. And you find yourself going, but God, I've, I did this, and God, I've done this in my past, and God, I keep doing this, and God, I'm such a, a failure, and God, I keep sinning, and God, I have all of this junk, and God, how in the world can you love me? How in the world can you forgive me? How in the world... And I want you to know there is no debt too large for God to forgive you. It's his unconditional love. It's his radical grace. It was all done on the cross. And you need to take a big breath and receive his forgiveness. Because your debt has been canceled. You need to rest in the fact that you're your heavenly father loves you that much that he put his son on a cross and how to forgive it starts there it's really realizing God's forgiveness on your life and when that happens it starts to change your heart when you realize the massive debt that God has canceled in your life guess what starts happening you start looking around to the people around you that keep hurting you or have hurt you, and you realize how small their debt is compared to what you think you owe God. And God starts to shift your heart. It just happens. And then you start canceling people's debt. God's 
extending forgiveness. And you start extending that to people around you. God can start fixing your heart. And when that starts happening, how you see God and how you see other people around you starts to shift. In this moment, we just wanted to give people a moment for you. Maybe it's just for the first time receiving the gift of Christ dying on the cross. Maybe for you in this moment, it's realizing God's forgiveness canceled your debt. No matter how big your debt you think you have, God's forgiveness has wiped that clear. Maybe for you in this moment, it's you canceling someone's debt. Maybe you need to pull out your phone, type a text message, and actually hit send. So then you're committed to having a conversation with someone. And here's the thing, in this moment, you, you know what you need to do. And if you take that bold step, watch God start fixing you, reshaping you. 